Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Academy, the cryptopedia for Web3 builders. My name is Gam and I will be your host for today. In this session, we'll be discussing starting a crypto project versus startup from the tech aspects such as the smart contract, the code audit, UX, UI with Nippun, head of tech at Alpha Venture DAO. Hi Nippun, how are you doing? Hi Gam, hi everyone. Nice to meet you. Glad to be here. Very glad to have you here today and share your experience with us. So before we start, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up starting a crypto project? Yeah, definitely. So I'm Nipun, currently head of tech at Alpha Venture DAO. So a little bit of background on myself. So I graduated CS and math from MNC, so bachelor's and master's. And previously, I've been competed in multiple math Olympiads and a little bit little bit of, of IOI stuff, so, so informatics in, in Olympiads as well. And then my first exposure into Bitcoin and Ethereum was during my freshman year at, at MIT, where um, I wrote like a simple bot to ARP token prices between exchanges. And yeah, and that got me started and got me interested in the crypto space. And from there, like I've learned also like learn more about the fundamentals of blockchain and smart contracts and then build the skills from there. So that's where I started. Cool. Yeah, so Nippon has been with Alpha Venture DAO since the start of uh, since 2020, and when we were still Alpha Finance Lab, and he's also one of the key contributors to Build Homera, which is the first product of Alpha Venture DAO that was very successful and like gained massive traction in the lending and yield farming space. So, for audience who may be unfamiliar with Homera, could you please give us a quick overview of the product? Okay, so Alpha Mora is the first leverage yield farming and leverage liquidity providing product in DeFi, right? So as a lender, you can lend assets and earn high lending APY. As a borrower or technically a yield farmer, you can borrow tokens and pay low interest rate. And to use that borrowed tokens to further gain farming APY on top of that. So that's a high APY from yield farming and then you pay borrow interest rate to the lenders. So that's how it works, right? It matches the demand between yield farmers and, and, and lenders. Yeah, so going back to history a bit, during DeFi summer, like yield farming was a very hot topic, right? DeFi summer was in 2020, I think. Yeah, and users can provide liquidity to Uniswap, SushiSwap, and stake their LPs, right? And earn staking rewards. I would say like 100%, 1,000%, three-digit, four-digit uh, APY. And that's really insane. And the users are crazy. However... There were large gaps between yield farming APR and the actual lending APR of like, say, Ethereum token, right? So ETH lenders in regular lending protocols like Compound, Aave, they still earn like single digit APY, while yield farmers can earn up to like three digits or four digits APY. And we started to see like huge gap between demand and supply, right? And then so the Homura idea began, right? Basically, Homura bridges the gap between ETH lenders and yield farmers who want to borrow ETH and use them to further yield farm. We're paying even better lending rates to the lenders. And, and yeah, that was the core concept of Homura V1. In Homura V2, we support more features. So more types of pools are supported. We support curve pool and technically balancer as well. Along with those, along with those, uh, there's also like more borrowable assets. So in addition to ETH lending, we have stable coins and other major governance tokens to be able to lend and borrow as well. And that's the quick overview for Homura. Nice. So if you're a yield farmer looking for high APY, be sure to check out Homura. And also you can follow our Twitter account at alpha underscore Homura V2 to get the most updated news, like the APYs, pools that we'll be supporting or the chain 
that we might be moved on to. Okay, so enough with the introduction. Let's come back to the topic that we'll be discussing today. So as the head of tech at Alpha Venture DAO, what was the first process you took to build Homera once you like had the idea of the product? Yeah, okay. Good question. So so when so the idea occasionally came like we, we see the demands, um, we see the gaps in, in, in the space, right? Where the lenders and borrowers, right? And so after we have the idea, we need to flesh out more details, right? So in terms of product, in terms of tech, so product wise it means I mean we need to find the strategy, will the product work? Think in terms of like demand and supply and and, and, and I think it's clearly for at least for Homora, there's a clear product market fit there. There's a clear huge gap between lend, like lending APY and borrow APY. You farming APY, sorry. In tech wise, you need to think about the architecture. So you need to think about how the product will work in terms of smart contract, in terms of UX UI. So and that's where we go to the whiteboard session, right? Um seeing the team on the product details and also align internally on the core of each functionality, then the user journey and rough UI UX, how users interact with the protocol. And once we have the high level idea, we also work uh, in parallel on the uh, smart contract side. So think in terms of architecture, how the components will be and how security can be modularized into components and the risk can be separated. And then after that, it's just build, right? Do we build the product with the smart contract, build the front end and then connect, and then we do internal testing and then it's normal process of how you build products and in, in the blockchain space. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference from starting a crypto project versus a startup as a developer? Oh yeah, definitely. I would say like lots of key differences, but I would think three most important things are three things, right? Speed. So speed is like in terms of like development speed. Crypto world is like 10x speed of traditional tech in terms of how things get shipped, how things get traction, and how fast things move. Speed is, is a key, right? So you ship product fast, you build fast, you can build like in terms of days, in terms of weeks, instead of like month and year, right? Second thing is impact, right? So when you have when you build fast, you may also fail fast or see impact fast. And this is a result of how blockchain protocols can get adopted much easier. Everything is reachable, accessible to everyone without a boundary, right? So that's where, where you can see the impact early on. And you know which one gets traction, which one which one fails. Yeah, so speed and impact are those uh, two things. Third thing is undeniably like I would say like the most important thing is the security. So you can see exploits can occasionally happen due to like decentralized nature. So there's no like centralized party that governs or control the funds and everything. So this means the security becomes like one of the most crucial aspects of building a good project, right? You need to have security framework parameters that need to be thought out carefully so that protocols cannot be un- under no underwater loans, depending on which aspect of product in the space you are working on, but everything relies on the security part. So I would say security is the most important while speed and impact also are the main differences between crypto project and normal traditional tech startup. I see. So for you, what do you think is the most challenging part that developers need to go through to build this Web3 project, I mean product, and like how did you tackle them? So, okay, so the question is the most challenging part for the developers build a Web3 product, right? So, okay, I think there are two main things. So let me separate into 
two categories, so smart contract and like the front end or UI UX side of things, right? So the smart contract, so the hardest thing is to write a secure, optimized smart contract. Why? Because writing a smart contract is easy. You can go online, there are a bunch of tutorials for you to get started. But to write a secure, optimized smart contract, it requires deep understanding of what you're trying to do tech-wise. So you need to under, understand the fundamentals. You need to have like critical thinking and analysis skill for you to be able to analyze like each line or each functionality of the code that you write down or actually depending on which protocols you are integrated with, you need to have a full understanding of how it works in order for you to be able to get 100% correctness for integration. There's no issues. There's no edge cases that can happen. And those comes down to like your analysis skills, experience about the previous hacks, exploits, or just how you think about the product itself uh, in terms of tech. So yeah, and I don't think there's any shortcut to this. So just need all the skills you need for, for the smart contract side. On the front end or UX side, the hardest part here is how to make the product as easy as possible for the users to use, right? Like basically, it's a user's journey. It's very important because most of the time, you, when you're building a product, it's relatively a new product where users may not be able to know it before. It's a new concept. So users need to be able to pick up this new concept, be able to pick up this new front-end, new interface, and know how to interact with it natively, right? And that's the hardest part to how to be, how to, how to make it as user friendly as possible for all the users who may not know very well of this new type of product exist. And they need to be able to understand with just looking at the UI UX, understand the flow, what they need to do, what's the risk, what's the messages that we need to do. Right. So I guess like experience is something that is very important that will really help you go through these challenging stages as well. And I guess like the only way to get better is to not stop building and like really practice and hone your skills. Otherwise, like get mentorship from the experts who have been building before you. So following that, I have another question for you. So as new techniques and approaches to building a product come up every day, how do you choose the right solution? Actually, that's a good question. Yeah, so think when new techniques come up, right? And it comes up every day. First, like you need to stay up to date with the latest technology and development tools. So and be ready to adopt those as well. So going back when we started Homura initially, I recall there was like multiple tools, for example, Truffle and Hardhat for development. And then later on, like Brownie rolled out, which is Python-based, Python-based like testing tool, development tool. And so we switched over like JavaScript-based to Python-based Brownie. Yeah. And, and, and then... Recently, there's a Foundry, Forge, and Cast. And then the new tool is like Lightning Fast and can help like increase efficiency in the development process by a significant amount, right? And, and we, we think that it can help uh, speed up things a lot and, and the, the flow and how our development works. So we start exploring and experimenting with it along with the new features that keep rolling out from them. So as, as I speak, like there are new features coming out. I think uh, right now there's Forge Script, Forge Local Testing, Forge local fork so that's really important and 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 we're using right now we are working on transitioning from brownie to to forge as we've experiment as we are experimenting experimenting with it yeah so right now we're using a combination of both forge and brownie right now but eventually we're planning on switch over as soon as possible as 
when the core features are out and then stabilize. Yeah. So, so in terms of new techniques approaches, I think it's just best to get up to date. So as you know, like crypto CT, crypto Twitter is where news and updates are there. And so you need to be able to stay up to date, pick up things and see what's best for you in terms of productivity, efficiency, and it might be worth to like take a step back and switch over things to a more efficient things, efficient tools and, and uses, usages. Why? Because we are very early in the crypto space. So in terms of like the development ecosystem, new tools are coming up, popping up every day. And so it's worth trying out. And, and in the future, I think there can be a lot more dev tools and educational materials, more advanced security checkers and so on. So keep, keep our eyes open for that as well and be ready to adopt them. Awesome. Some great insights for developers there. Make sure you jot that down. So now let's just take a step back. Like before building the product, how do you choose which chain you should build your product on? Okay, so so this is on the product side of things, right? So which chain do you go for? I think it depends. It depends. Back then when Homeworld was launched, there's not many chains. Most, if not all, of their activities are on Ethereum. So there's not, not much choice there. But in general, like which chain do you want to launch? It comes down to is there a market fit for the product, right? And market fit means is there organic market demand for the product? Is your ecosystem ready? And how's the community, how how the community perceive the chain itself, activities wise, how how does it look, right? So for Homora, Homora itself uh, depends on existing yields, right? So farming APYs, at their trading fees or liquidity depth of the pools, existing lendings and assets that are supported, how robust Oracle sources are. And that's why we initially launched on Ethereum because there's, it's the only place where existing yields are, were there. There were existing lendings as well. And also assets are supported are major tokens which have robust Oracle sources. So, so yeah, so that's why we initially launched on Ethereum. After that, when we launched Homer V2 and other stuff, other chains, L1 chains, our chains have popped up. And, and they have solid APR on the farming side as well. And also on the infrastructure uh, in, in terms of like building blocks, protocols, like lendings. So we built on top of those as well. We, we see that there's demand, people you farm in other chains as well. So, and, and assets that are supported are strong enough and have robust Oracle sources. And so we, we now support Avalanche, I think a BSC as well, and also Phantom. Yeah, and we are, we are working on expanding to other chains as well as we see the, the place where there's demand, right? So which chain has demand, we'll go there. And so this is gen- in general, like applied for other products as well, not just Homeworld, right? You need to be able to know what kind of product you're building, what's, what's the key thing you're looking for. Is there a market fit demand in that chain? If so, then I will say yes. Right, cool. So basically, product market, if there's market fit for the product and demand and if the ecosystem is ready. Okay, let's discuss a bit more on the smart contract. Like, what are the things you consider when writing smart contracts? Like, for example, like securities, definitely one of them that you mentioned earlier. And like, what else do you think is important? Okay, so when writing smart contracts, I think there are several things that needed to be considered, right? Let me think. I think there are a total of four or five things that I can think of on the top of my head. So one is 
simplicity in terms of design and protocol architecture. The design should be simple, easy to understand. The more complex, the more prone it is to vulnerabilities and exploits, right? So you want to keep the, the simplicity in there. Second is modularity. So you need to separate functions. Contracts to separate modules, maybe separate contract itself. Each function should do only one thing, and that's in general. In, in general, like it's it's just like basic coding practice, best practice that you should follow, anyways. Modularity. Then third is readability. So always write uh, variables and and also like coding style to be consistent across the project. That's good for reviews, good for analysis when you come back later and, and analyze like an audit code as well. So it helps you understand the code and others to understand the code and logic well enough. Fourth thing is access control. This is mostly sometimes overlooked by multiple, many people. So access control determines like who can call this function, who can access this variable, and who can change this variable, something like this. So it limits the control of unnecessary or unexpected access behaviors. If you don't expect this contract to be able to call this function, then then you may, may need to have like access control over this function to limit the the access there. And if you can see like multiple exploits have been in the past, been on the this particular access control feature. Basically, the developers sometimes forget or did, did not expect malicious like contract to be able to call this function and then it, it leads to an exploit. Then fifth thing is gas optimizations. So basically, think it's always good to optimize gas because this is it reflects directly to the users. Users pay gas. So so yeah. So I think gas optimization is something that devs should be constantly aware and optimize when possible. Yeah, I think so. So in summary, like I think five things are considered: simplicity, modularity, readability, access control, and gas optimizations. Oh, thanks for the, for that, Nippon. So another step that I think is also essential that builders need to go through is code audit and code review. So could you share your experience doing the code review with your team? Ah, yes. So code review. So code review is basically just when you have a features and you have some changes to the protocol, be it minor or major, you 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 update you update. Open the PR and then we have an internal review, right? That's core review. So, so what's the process there? So it's just peer review first and then also a review by a senior blockchain developer. So example, for example, by me to make sure the, there's no missing simple things. And so basically it's, we treat it as like internal code audit. So like, as like how audit, how audit firms read. So that's the level of robustness or, or the level of details that we want everyone in the team to be able to look into the code at that level. So that's core view in, in part one. The part two is like every changes and every edits to, to the code need to also be run on the unit test or local fork test as well. So even if the changes is really minor at one line of code, needs to be run against unit test so that as part of the process to ensure that the changes do not break the old assumptions, old testing test cases. And yeah, so, so that's one of the things. And also just a note that we also have the coding standard 
So everyone must follow the rule. For example, that it, basically the coding style. So it's easier to read and audit internally as well. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is the most efficient way to do this? And like, how how often should you do the code review? Mm, the most efficient way, I think there's no workaround to this. So whenever there's code change, even minor ones, you do code audit. For the PR, and then you review diff. Sometimes you need to think more and look more into than just the diff, uh, the code diff. You need to look into what impact it can create to other modules as well. So in addition, like as I've said before, like unit tests and fork testing should be still included in all changes so that it can be tested against. How often do you do the code? So, so apart from every code changes, you also need to have like review from time to time as well. So for example, a couple of months, you may want to review the code again to make sure that the code, you understand the code in the team as well so that you can act upon it fast uh, when issues happen. Mm-hmm. Cool. So apart from like doing the code review internally, I get getting code audited in is very important as well, I think, because it kind of guarantees the quality of your code to an extent. But how do you choose like the right firm to do the code audit? Like, is there like a minimum number of firms you need to get audited by? Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And, and I think this is one of the few misconceptions people may perceive in the industry. So I think for me, at least, like everyone needs to first understand that audit is not bulletproof. And you've seen multiple times in, in, in the past, right? Even audited codes can still have uh, vulnerabilities due to other things, due to they're missing the part or maybe the DevOps uh, security, the object part. So, so is more audit good? What's the minimum number? So let me explain the first that more audits is more eyes, right? So more audits means there's always a better chance for you to find issues during the, the audit session and, and you can fix your code. So more audits, always always better but is there a minimum number of firms you need to get audited no so 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 that's i think like one or two is fine as long the, the thing is you need to be able to be confident in your code you need to understand the the code that you've written because you will be the one the developer themselves will be the one that know the code most in and out so you need to be able to be confident about the code yourself and think about it critically and analyze the code from time to time as well. On the how to choose the right firm to audit, I would say there's no real answer to this. Two things you can do, do, you can do right? The first is look at the previous audit. So to, to, to see how the quality is done. So you look at past audits and use that as a baseline of the audit quality, how, how details they are looking into, how, how much impact they, they can create. And the second part is apart from like the, the, the previous audit, I would say like just recommendations from others. So you can ask like other experienced, um, protocols to see what's your feedback on the specific firm and then how the working relationship is. Sometimes because the work dynamics between auditors and, and developers are really matters. Some, some firms are really unresponsive. So that's a no no for at least for me. So yeah. So. It's, it's kind of like up in the air, right? more up in the, up in the air. So like the minimum numbers, there's no limit. And the, choose the right firm, you just pass audit and also recommendations. Right. So when, sh- when, when do you think like the code audit should be conducted and like how long does the process take? 
Okay, so so on the code audit, so when should it be conducted? So I would say when you're comfortable with the code, should be no major changes to the code. So when you figure out and code like 80% of, of, of your, your code, then I think you prepare for the audit. So this is good for the audit firms to also estimate like audit timeline and cost because you need them to be frozen or almost frozen. No, no major changes. The process, the auditing process can, it, it varies. Like it can take from one week to four weeks or more, depending on complexity of the code base, how, in terms of lines, in terms of how complex your protocol is as well, including maybe if you integrate with other protocols, then, then maybe they need to look into integration part as well. And usually the process, so in the one week to four weeks or more that I mentioned, that's the auditing process. That's the initial audit. So when the initial audit is completed, they'll send, usually send a status report of the, of the issues that they have. And after that, like you can follow up on them. Most, most of the time you can follow up on them on the reviews and fixes and they can help review the fixes as well. And if it fixes and they can update the report accordingly. So, so yeah. So, okay. All right. Thanks, Nippon. So just one last question before we end the session. Do you have any other tips or tricks to ensure that the process goes smoothly? Mm, the process for... Okay, so, for, so, so on the audit part? So yeah. let me first dive into on the audit part. So usually, I would say just plan the development timeline and especially with the audits carefully. Most audits require booking ahead of time. So it can be weeks it could be months ahead depending on the schedule and, and, and demands top tier firms can have like three months backlog so so yeah so you need, you need to book ahead of time lead time yeah a couple of months smaller audit firms can have like a couple of weeks so plan your development timeline and sync with the audit firm early on to book a slot cool yeah. Thank you very much, Nippon, for spending your time with us today. We definitely got lots of useful tips for builders, especially for developers. And also, thanks everyone for listening and see you next time. Thank you, everyone.